Let us pray. Thank you for your word, Father God, this living word which changes lives. We pray tonight that we might find it as a two-edged sword, Lord, sharp, incisive, ready to speak powerfully into our lives. Amen. If you have opened before you the book of Titus there this evening, page 1198, I'm going to very quickly give you a bit of a feel for what this letter is all about, um, who wrote it, who to, and all that sort of stuff. But then I want to spend the majority of our time picking up on the major theme of the book. Not, Not the detail this evening. That was for another time. But this evening, trying to capture the spirit of this letter and to do that very quickly. The book of Titus is the record of a senior pastor's letter to a junior pastor. And the senior pastor is Paul, the same Paul who's spent years traveling through the known world of his day, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the same Paul whose letters make up such a a large proportion of our New Testament. We see that in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now this letter, along with First and Second Timothy, makes up a set of three of Paul's letters called the pastoral epistles. Because unlike all of Paul's other letters, which are written to congregations, they aren't. They're written to individuals. They're written to young men, Timothy, and in this case, Titus, who are pastors of these congregations. So unlike Romans or Galatians or Ephesians, these letters are addressed to individuals teaching these young men how to to be pastors in their church. If we look down at verse 4, we see a a little of who Paul is writing this letter to. It's Titus, whom he calls his true son in our common faith. Now, Titus isn't Paul's natural son, but he was probably converted under Paul's ministry. By the stage Titus is at when he receives this letter, he's probably known Paul for about 15 years. And they have quite a bit of a background together. Titus had been with Paul on his third missionary journey. He'd helped out when there was trouble at the church in Corinth. And whenever there was a famine in Palestine and Paul wanted to send somebody through the churches to to gather up money for the famine relief, he chose Titus as one of those who would make that journey. Titus is somebody whom Paul loves dearly and trusts entirely. He's one of his young protégés. Um, a, a pastor in these fledgling churches. Now, if we look here, every time we open a letter of Paul's, we should always ask ourselves a question, and we don't always do this. Sometimes we just plow on in. What, why has Paul written this letter? Sounds obvious, but, but actually it's not a, a question that we always go to quickly enough when we look at Paul's letters. What's the reason for this particular letter? He hasn't written it so that we have an extra chunk of theology in our Bibles. He's written it to uh, either a congregation or to a person. The reason Paul tells us very early here in chapter 1 and verse 5, he's writing to Titus because he wants Titus to look after a church that's been founded in Crete. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished. 
So in this letter, we're going to find what advice Paul wants to give to Titus about how to pastor a young church in Crete. I just want to to back up for a second here and explain to you why I chose this letter as one of the first things I would preach here at Kirkpatrick. It's a pretty, uh, well, it's a very short letter. It's certainly not one of the best known parts of, of Paul's writings. I chose this specifically because I thought that this letter was written into a context that probably most closely mirrored what was going on in Kirkpatrick at the time when I preached it. In Crete, there are a small gathering of believers, and they're in a context that's pretty unsympathetic to the gospel. And Titus is trying to build up a community of faith in that context. And whenever I came here to Kirkpatrick, that struck a real chord with me. That sounded a lot like what we're about doing here at Kirkpatrick in these early days. A smallish number of us, maybe compared to some some bigger churches. And we're trying to establish here a community of God's people and to grow. So this letter seemed like a brilliant place to start. I'm going to take you just for three or four minutes on a a whistle-stop tour. We're going to go through the letter literally in three or four minutes, just to give you an idea of what's in there, but not dealing with any of the, the detail. And then I'm going to come back to pick up what I think is the main theme of the letter. After the opening greeting in in verses 1 to 4, in verse 5 of chapter 1, the first thing Paul tells Titus to do is to appoint elders. You see, Paul knows that no church can either ever rise above the level of its leadership. A church will only ever be as strong as the leaders in that congregation. So he gives Titus here a list of criteria that he should apply as he's thinking of appointing elders. We're not going to deal with that this evening, but we will return to this passage sometime in the not-too-distant future because this is one of the the key biblical passages that a congregation should have before them when they're thinking of of appointing elders. And that's something we might be doing in the not-too-distant future. Reading on, in verses 10 to 16, Titus is to oppose false teachers That's a common theme in Paul's teaching, and again, it's a vital one, because God's people must always be on their guard against false teaching. I think it would be impossible for me to overestimate or to overstate this evening how much damage is done in a church when there is either false teaching or a failure of of honest and open biblical teaching of God's word. If the truth of the gospel isn't faithfully preached, a congregation will be in trouble, and that before long. In chapter 2, Paul goes on to give Titus almost like a curriculum, if you like, for what he should teach to particular groups in the church. In the first half of the chapter, he works his way through people of different genders and different age groups. He begins with older men and then older women, young women and young men. In a sense, Paul's making it very clear that this is for everyone. There's no one in the church community who doesn't need to be learning what it is to live faithfully for Jesus Christ. 
And that's something, it seems obvious, but I wonder if sometimes we're given to the temptation of thinking, well, the, the learning is for others. You know, I've been at this game for 50 years or whatever number of years. There isn't much more for me to learn. Titus is to teach older men. He's to teach older women. He's to teach younger men and younger women. Everyone is to be learning more about what it is to grow in their walk with God. Then in verse 9, he turns his attention to how a believer ought to behave in their workplace. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. Then in the early verses of chapter 3, Paul urges Titus to impress on believers their responsibility in the public sphere. So he's dealt with church, he's dealt with the, the workplace, and then he's right out into the public sphere. Remind people to be subject to rulers and authorities. When you read these verses, it's very clear that the kind of life that God calls us to isn't a private thing. It's not something just for us among ourselves as Christians, but our lives for God need to be lived out at home, in the church, in our workplaces, and in the community. At every point where you have contact, God longs to see you full of his spirit, and living for him. All of this begs a question, how can we do this? How can any of us live a godly life and do it right across the board in all these different places and and right throughout our lives, whether we're young or old? Paul tells us in two passages here in particular, in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and then in chapter 3, verses 3 to 8. He describes the power of the gospel to change lives. I want to pick up just very quickly on one of those, chapter 3 and verse 3 onwards. This is probably the fullest description of the power of the gospel anywhere in the New Testament. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated, hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Friends, we can only live the life that God calls us to when he saves us, when he in his mercy saves us. We need to be reborn. We need to be renewed by the presence of God's Spirit in us. It's nothing to do with us. It's only by God's grace. Well, that, in a sense, is all I want to say on our our race through this very short letter. Apart from picking up now, just for a few minutes, on what is the main and underlying and recurring theme, if there's one thing I wanted those people who, who did study this together with me last year to remember, this would be it. I'll not ask you to put your hands up. 
There's one very, very strong thread running the whole way through Titus, and it's something we haven't mentioned yet. Eight times in this very short three chapters, good works and good deeds are mentioned. Let me quickly show you them without any comment at all. Chapter 1 and verse 8. A qualification for an elder or leader, it must be one who loves to do what is good. Chapter 1 and verse 16, warning against false teachers, they're unfit to do anything good. Chapter 2 and verse 4, older women are to teach what is good. Chapter 2 and verse 7, Titus himself in everything is to set them an example by doing what is good. Chapter 2 and verse 14, God's purpose for all his people is to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And then a reminder to people about their public behavior. Chapter 3 and verse 1, remind the people to be ready to do whatever is good. And then as a reason in chapter 3 and verse 8, to teach the gospel clearly so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. When Paul concludes and summarizes the whole letter, he says, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Sorry about that. That's so much there, so many times in this very short letter. Paul wants Titus to stress this need for good deeds on the believers in Crete. I was conscious when I prepared this last year and when I was looking at it again for you this evening, just how, how unique this message might be and how much it might stand in contrast to other passages in the Bible and what they appear to be saying. You might be wondering here, whether this doesn't go against the grain of, of some other teaching that you would hear from pulpits. Have our teachers and our ministers, have they not taught us till they're blue in the face that this Christian life isn't about good deeds? We're saved by grace through faith, not of our own deeds that any one of us should boast. Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians 2? Even a moment ago in chapter 3 and verse 5, we read here that God saved us, not because of righteous things that we'd done, but because of his mercy. Why, if our good deeds don't give us this merit before God, if they don't contribute to our salvation, why does Paul harp on about good deeds and good deeds and good deeds in this letter to Titus? Better than me giving you the answer, probably best just to look at the answer as we find it in the passages themselves. Just I'll point out three passages here that, that switch the light on uh, where there's confusion here. Look at chapter 2 and verse 5. Titus is to urge the older women to teach younger women to live good lives so that no one will malign the word of God. He gives the reason. Look at chapter 2 and verse 8. Titus is to model good deeds so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say against us. Look at chapter 2 and verse 10. 
Slaves are to serve their masters well so that in every way they'll make the teaching of God our Savior attractive. Did you pick that up? Do you see now why good deeds are important in Crete and why they will be important for us? It's to make the gospel attractive. When we live the way God intends us to, we will make the life of Christ that is in us attractive to other people. Whenever we genuinely display how God is changing our life and at work in our life, others will genuinely be drawn to that. They'll want to know more. They'll want to know Jesus for themselves. By the way, Paul's not saying anything new here. He's picking up just on the kind of thing that Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember the passage where he talked to his disciples? He said, let your light shine before men. Do you remember the second half of that verse? Let your light shine before men. Why? So that they'll see your good deeds and praise your Father who's in heaven. That's why we're to live lives of good works and good deeds so that other people will have a chance to see the glory of God. I want to conclude and bring this home to you as emphatically as I can. I want to to leave Paul's letter to Titus for a moment and invite you to come with me on two imaginary pastoral visits. They're imaginary in the sense that I'm not breaking any confidence. I'm not telling you about any person in particular, but they're entirely accurate in that they represent the kind of visits that I would experience from time to time in my work. Let's, let's knock first on this door. I'm visiting here at the home of a woman in her 80s. She opens the door, polite, but, but obviously a little bit uneasy to see the minister arriving at her door. She invites us in, and as we talk, she, she begins to tell me that she grew up in the church She was well taught in Sunday school and that she knows her Bible. And it all sounds very encouraging. Then she goes on to tell me that she's heard all the stuff about about Jesus and his dying on the cross and her needing to accept him as her savior. And it all sounds great. And then I ask her, well, have you done that? Have you accepted Jesus Christ? Are you walking with him and following him? No, she says, and her face tightens up into a snarl. I haven't, and I'm not going to. And at that point, I ask her, why not? I've been in the church, and I know what it's like. I grew up in it, and I don't want anything more to do with it. If you knew some of the things that people in the church had done to me, you'd understand. You should see how I've been treated by some so-called Christians. Christians and churchgoers, she says, are all just hypocrites. If that's what being a Christian is all about, I don't want to know. I don't want anything to do with it. I try to reason with her and tell her that, well, for every, every bad Christian you meet, there, there will be good ones. But she's, she's a closed book. She doesn't want to hear As I eventually leave that home and 
walk down the garden path and close the gate behind me, I, I leave reflecting that, that the Christian people whom this woman ha, has met are going to make it very difficult for her to ever hear for herself the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come with me, though, on this, this next visit. We're in a different street, but again we're calling on a woman in the twilight of her years. This time we get a wonderful warm welcome with a big smile. Despite her cataracts and her varicose veins, she's clearly full of joy. She's glad to have us visiting with her. Whenever I ask her how she finds such joy in life, despite the, the physical pain and all the frustrations that, that her body presents her with, her face lights up. And she says, it's, it's very simple, really. God gave me a, a wonderful church family. I know that Jesus is my savior. I know that he, he has his life, my life in the palm of his hands. I have so much to be grateful for, but particularly I'm grateful for the, the lovely people God gave me in my church family. We ask her about that, and she tells us some more. I came to know Jesus, she says, when I was a young woman. I was in the Bible class, and my teacher, Mrs. Y, had a, a, lovely, a lovely way. She prayed for us. She taught us as clearly as she could about Jesus. And before long, I, I was drawn to a living faith in him myself. My elder at the church, Mr. X, was a, a lovely, godly man, a real gem. He visited faithfully with me. He cared for me through those times when, when I lost my husband and when I had difficulties with my children. So loving and so patient. I was blessed, she tells us, with a godly minister, one who preached faithfully God's word and who practiced what he preached. See what I mean, she says. With people like that around me, I've been blessed. It's been easy for me to find my way and to live in the family of God. Friends, believe me when I say that both of those visits are entirely typical of the kind of visits that I have from time to time as a pastor. Isn't it incredible what a difference our conduct can make in another person's life? Unfortunately, there, there are many, many people in Ulster tonight who cite other people and other Christians as their reason for not following Jesus Christ. But friends, the wonderful experience that so many others have had is that those who have been faithful, those who have lived the life of God among them have had a wonderful influence on them, have led many to faith and have helped them to keep on the path of faith. Whenever Paul writes this short letter to Titus in Crete, he urges Titus to spur the believers on to live godly lives, lives of good works and good deeds. He wants the church in Crete to be a place that attracts, that draws people towards Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
that Kirkpatrick would be the same. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the, the grace that saves us. We thank you that our salvation isn't based on anything that we do. Lord, if it were, we would be stuck. But we thank you, Lord, that you have taken that first massive move on our behalf. You have reached us in Jesus and you have saved us. But Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us there. Thank you that by your grace, you now want to make us into your people. Shining lights in this dark world. Wonderful adverts for Jesus and the life of Christ. Lord, would you come by your Spirit among us individually to make us into people whose character is being formed like that of Jesus? And collectively, Lord, may your Spirit be at work among us to make us a community who radiates the love of Jesus into Ballyhackamore. Lord, we pray that that something would go on here that we can't contain. Something that bursts out of this building and flows from this place in a way that we can't prevent. The life of God for this community. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done among us. And Lord, we long to see more of your work in the days ahead. Amen.